Welcome, Ross McDonough, aka The Nomadic Veteran, and welcome to uh, episode 7 of the Vet Files podcast. We're starting to get some numbers now. Um, <laughs> this week, Lee Frank Spencer, former bootneck, turned rowing machine, uh, is is with me. Um, if you've if you've got here from watching the YouTube videos of, of either Lee or any of the other guys which have been on the Vet Files, uh, I hope you've enjoyed them, and you're probably interested to hear more specifically about some of Lee's dits. Um, it was great talking to Lee uh, because, in all honesty, I could not imagine what it's like to row across the Atlantic Ocean. I just, you know, I've se- you've seen a bit of the, the footage he's got of him doing it. Uh, if you Google him, you can find out more about, about Lee. But generally when you actually stop and think about rowing across the Atlantic it's fucking mental um and that's where chatting to Lee is great because he he tells some amazing stories and yeah I I can't rave enough about this uh about this podcast anyway I'll leave it there I hope you enjoy it uh if you do enjoy it please share it to other people who you think may enjoy it and uh yeah, I guess we'll see you for episode eight. Enjoy, people. Welcome, everybody. Russ McDonough, aka the Nomadic Veteran, and uh, welcome to this uh, this week's podcast, episode number seven, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly. Anyway, uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Lee, and Lee's going to introduce himself, and then we'll uh, we'll get straight into it. Lee, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Afternoon. Um, what do you want me to say? <laughs> Who you are, what you were, who you are now, all that good stuff. Okay, I'm uh, Lee, or probably better known uh, throughout the Corps as Frank Spencer. I was a Royal Marine for 24 and a half years, and right at the end of my career, I unfortunately lost my leg, and since then I've done a bit of rowing. Just a little bit of rowing. A little bit of rowing. Yeah, I like it. Um, and for anyone listening who hasn't, who hasn't heard of Lee, you're probably thinking uh, Lee lost his leg... On ops, but we'll cover that in a bit. Um, before we get started into into all that, then uh, going back all those many moons ago, what made you want to join the corps? I wanted to be a bootneck for as long as I can remember. Um, I can. Re- I grew up uh, in the early eighties. Was at school, so the Falklands was still fresh in everybody's mind, and the Royal Marines were front and centre of that. And then there was the programs. Afterwards, like behind the lines that followed the ML course, um, and there was a lot of interest with the MLs at Top Malo House, the attack on the Argentinian Special Forces. So that was all really, really fresh in everybody's mind, and that was who I wanted to be. And um, as a serious career choice, uh, I'll say my dream was to be a Royal Marine bootneck mm. rather than seeing it as a as something that was viable because uh, when, you, when you're 13 and just before you take your options you have like a careers fair at school mm-hmm. and they send around all the local factories and whatever career you want to go into and uh, they they had the armed forces there so there was someone from the Navy, Army and RAF and there was a bootneck there I went up to him and says right I want to be a Royal Marine and he said uh, oh you captain of the school football team so that, no, I'm not even in the football team. <laughs> rugby team? My school didn't have a rugby mm. team. 
He said, you know, you're not really on what we're looking for. Sure. And uh, I was, I was obviously was devastated. And then I said, oh, can I have one of the brochures? You know, they're like the glossy brochure. Yeah. And he says, oh, no, I haven't really got any left. <laughs> and there was a big pile behind him. <laughs> so I was quite fretted. So actually when I, I, I lost the dream, of, not the dream, I lost the, the thought or, the, or being a Royal Marine as a serious career choice. There's something that I could work towards. Just because he said, yeah, not yeah, really. When you look at them, when you when you were a kid, you 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 sort of look at people and you think, well, he must know what he's talking. Yeah. About. And uh, I then stumbled into a really awful job that I hated um, in working in laboratories, just like, as a menial, looking after the you know the animals or just mm-hmm. scrubbing floors and and. Uh, I've done that and then just I can't I thought to myself I can't do this mm. and I went back to the careers office uh, at 18 and uh, Chief Petty Officer Smith who was in the uh, careers office at Holborn in 19 what would it have been about 1989 and I remember 1988 1989 so if you're listening you were wrong uh, <laughs> <laughs> got to the got to the interview stage and he said, nah, you, you, you're not what we're looking for. You're not going to pass a PRC. And again, you think, well, they must know what they're looking for. And, this and, was the Matlow telling you. Yeah, Matlow. But you don't know that. You yeah. just see someone who works in a careers office and someone who you think knows what they're talking about. And, um, and you, you got to remember, I had, a, I had a less than ideal childhood, so I didn't really have a great opinion of myself. So if someone says, you're not what you're mm-hmm. we're looking for, I was more inclined to believe them, then see that as a challenge. Um, I say that, but on the last uh, attempt, I sort of left my job, and it, there was a realisation that one day I'll, I'll blink and I'll wake up 10 years down the line having done this job that I hate. hated myself for doing it as well. I wasn't proud of the person I was. There was no, uh, there was no pride in seeing or being the person that I was, and um, I thought, well, well, I'll just leave this job because if I wait for another job to come along, I'll never leave. So I left and took our, uh, my last pay packet and went to Canada for three weeks on a holiday, stay with family with me then girlfriend. And I came back and I started working behind bars in um, local clubs, pubs, and that in Dagenham where I come from. And uh, I thought, right, well, I'll give myself three months to get as fit as I possibly can and give it one last attempt. Went to the careers office, I was 21, uh, 20? Probably 20, just just turned 21. Went to the careers office, they sent me on a uh, potential recruits course mm. and, uh, you know, so I was over the moon and the night before I was due to travel down to Linston, my aunt and uncle came and visited uh, uh, my mum and, uh, my uncle told me, he says, nah, you're, you're not getting, oh, uh, you'll not pass out, you'll not be able to take the discipline and do what you're told and they're not going to be interested in you. And that, that kind of, that that drove me. Mm-hmm. And um, I got down to Limston for the potential recruits course and I scraped everything, every one of the tests, I just scraped. And I know I did um, because I got called back in uh, when I give out the results. I'd passed, but then they called out a few names to stand, you know, come and listen, uh, go back in and, and see the uh, the 
uh, Sergeant Major, the PRC. And I recognised him because he'd followed me round on the last day when you get thrashed round the, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the assault course. And I now know that they were looking at me because I was scraping. Yeah. So he wanted to have a good look at us. And that's why he followed me round. And uh, and he said, you know, you, you, your scores are pretty, you need to work on this, you need to work on that, but, you know. You'll you'll do well, and he didn't say you'll do well. He says, you know, you you'll get a place in training. Um, but these are the things you need to work on. And as I as I walked out, he said, uh, "Spencer," and I turned round and he went, "You'll be a good bootleg." Oh. And uh, my second draft was back at Limston, and he ended up working as a security guard at Limston. He then went to the armory after that, and he worked there for years and years. Um, really nice guy. And I remember being on the gate with him as a Marine and I relayed that story and he claims to have remembered me though I doubt him mm. very much. I thought he was just being nice. But that stuck in my mind, that and my uncle, the two, I suppose, a carrot and stick that yeah. drove me. But once I got in training, once I... The, the thing with the PRC and I, I, I sort of alluded to the fact that I you know, I wasn't happy with the person I was mm-hmm. and I was inclined, more inclined to believe someone who says I was rubbish at something. <laughs> the, the, the thing about the PRC is I found something finally that I could be good at. I've said, you know, when uh, the, the, the careers fair said, are you captain of the football team? I said, I wasn't even in it. I played football my life. I'm just rubbish at it. Yeah. I, I like running. I've always sort of, used to do cross-country running. And uh, I come in my year, like for, this is someone who actually likes doing it, mm. uh, in my year, the cross-country team trials, I still remember, I came 53rd out of 90. I'm just not... And uh, even me, like, you, you used to get a one-for-one book where all your reports were written. Oh, OK, yeah. And um, the first one's written by your troop officer. And it, it said... In training, it said in there, not a natural athlete. Uh, that was the first thing it says, and then it sort of seems to be priced. I've done yeah. really well in training, actually, um, despite not being a natural yeah. athlete. Um, and it, you know, at the bottom it said a good man. Um, mm. But that that thing of not being good at things, you know, playing football and, and being rubbish at it, and um, just not being good at anything physical and I wasn't academic either so I couldn't even I didn't like yeah, yeah. Didn't, you, you need an identity when you're a kid you need something where you can say oh, I'm this person and I just had didn't have that never had it but the PRC that changed my life because I finally found something that I was good at and that was not giving in that's an admirable trait to have I'd never been yeah never knew that I had it. You only know when you push yourself. And mm. Yeah, if, if I have a gift, it is not giving in. And how was how was training for you? Yeah, good. I, I sort of flourished. I, I, first of all, I, I sort of joined and there was like lads who, uh, there was like Billy Rogers who ran for Scotland. Um, and there was a lad who boxed for Wales and all these, you know, prodigious. Mm. person and 
I remember looking about and thinking, and you know the statistics, you know actually the odds are against you mm-hmm. getting to the end. And I remember thinking, I ain't going to be able to do this. I ain't going to, you know, I, I I doubted myself that I would. Mm. And, and, and it's reasonable, actually, for me to think that because if you look at all these people who, who you know, box for Wales, ran for the KMPs, mm. ran for the... I've done nothing like that. I have nothing. And so I started off quite, uh, quite nervous of failing. But towards, like, I suppose about a third of the way in, as people started dropping, you start to get a little bit of... Um, you, you take confidence from that, and that, I don't mean that in a bad way. No, I totally get it, yeah. It's not liking seeing people fail when you don't. It's the people that you assumed would fail after you had. Mm. And when that role starts reversing, you start to get confidence. And, and then I genuinely liked it. I loved it. Because it was... So, oh, oh, I flourished in training. And awesome. it, it was the first time that I'd ever been reasonable. Not even good, just yeah. reasonable at something. Fucking hell, mate. So, um, and you, we talked before, you were a trooper original. So you must have been, yeah, you were, you were doing well. Lucky, I, I twisted my ankle, um, rolled my ankle on hold fast. Uh, I was carrying, um, uh, he's still in actually, Jan Hutchins. Right. He used to call Rhino, was his nickname. <laughs> Rhino Hutchins, he's a, he was a driver. And uh, I was carrying him on my shoulder um, and my foot went down a like a, a divot or something. I rolled it and I was limping throughout the whole exercise. Right at the end, I remember the call was like, right, get your boot off then, let's have a look. And I took my boot off and I could just imagine it looking pristine. Mm. But it, and, and then them going, oh, you know, you're just whinging over nothing because it was sore. And I took my boot off and it was massive. My ankle was like, it was black, mm. and like really black. And there was the odd tint of purple there. And the call was went, ooh. <laughs> and I, it was a bit of like, ooh. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank Christ for that. Yeah, last thing, yeah. But I got a month's no fizz chip. Uh, just, it was just a twisted angle. Um, but I couldn't do fizz, but it happened to um, coincide with summer leave. And as I said, I sort of flourished from mm. training. They wanted to, they could have back me because there was, I think I had two weeks no fizz and they kept me with the troop. Mm. And it was overfilled firing. So I would walk back when everybody was getting speed marched back. It was a real struggle when I went back into doing fizz again because um, I was right at the back for mm. a couple of weeks so I had to really work hard to get up. But if that wasn't, uh, if it wasn't for summer leave, then I'll, I'll, there's no way they could have kept me for a whole month um, without doing fizz with the troop. Um, Dude, you've got to take so a bit just, of luck, yeah, yeah, man. So I was lucky. But I think, I think to actually get through training as an original, you don't need to be lucky. I think you just need the absence of bad luck, which is... Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then from there, now full Royal Marine Commando. Yep, I went to a K Company in uh, uh, 4-2 Commando. Uh, One Troop K Company. Probably the fittest troop (laughs) in the whole corps. And as someone who, as I just just said, wasn't a, a natural athlete, 
it was quite hard work. It was Damn. Phil Gilby was one of my first corporals. Uh, Bert Lane was an ML. Um, Tweety Sylvester, um, a PTI who now works with the England rugby team. Um, they were my corporals. And whenever I say that to people of my generation yeah. in the corps, they, they kind of went, ooh, <laughs> kind of that look of when you pass out when the cane comes in. I remember my mate went to Lima and they'd be out pissing up and laughing and joking and things and, and we'd be out running <laughs> thinking, what crap I'd be in Lima? Mm. But it, it was, um, again, it, I look back and it weren't that great but because you go straight from training, anything that isn't training is it's brilliant. Awesome, so I, yeah. yeah, I loved it. Um, and then from there, I, I'd done an island tour, 94-95, um, which again changed my career slightly. Um, I, this is back in the day when you had to put in a candidate's chip to be a court. That's right, yeah. And um, before you put your candidate's chip in, you had to do an island and a Norway. Otherwise, you know, you were a spog and you got like that. And I put my sniper's chip in and uh, I, got, I got a lot of stick. I love it. Lads are, what are you doing that for? You're a spog, blah, blah, blah. And I passed the selection in um, 4-2 mm. and actually got on the course. And the day I passed the selection, it was sort of like I sort of crossed the barrier in the troops, I was like, oh, Frank, yeah, Oofing, well done. Or, I was one of the lads yeah. there instead of a sprog, so I was like, oh, brilliant. But that meant that I failed the um, uh, sniper's course. Mm. There was only two people who passed on my course. Hardest sniper course uh, in the world. 12, yeah. yeah. But it used to be, um, it actually changed as a result of my course because there was a, some lads, there was some, uh, a couple of lads who then went on and had like, really good careers in the SBS and like real... Hmm. lads who have been BPT for like four or five years like really um, experienced um, uh, soldiers who were passing everything and everything the, the course finished with the badge test and if you failed one of the badge tests you got a second go mm-hmm. and if you didn't pass it then you, failed, you had hmm. to pass all of the badge tests um, because of the uh, there was there was a, a lad called uh, I can't remember his name. He ended up dying. I think it was Clem. He ended up uh, getting killed ashore. Uh, a tragic accident got mm. dropped on his head, minion, by a load of his mates um, somewhere up north. And there was this other lad who passed, uh, who was like me. Had failed. He'd failed everything all the way through the course. Mm. I failed it because I just didn't have the experience of so things like on ob stances. Um, where if you've been surrounded by military objects, mm-hmm. you kind of see them, whereas I hadn't for that long. Uh, so I've got no qualms with uh, not passing the course. But what it gave me is when I went back to K Company, they were then, then doing the beat, beat up for the island tour in South Armagh in 94, and I got put in a sniper multiple, and we were detached. And throughout that tour, we worked with... Um, uh, what was JSG Op Sanson mm-hmm. or Op Ajax it used to be called yeah that's right Maximise Maximise Op Max Maximise so we was just their multiple so you got to see not only did I not see a Sanger for the whole <laughs> tour we just patrolled and uh, we actually went out in um, uh, went out drinking on the weekends because they tended to not work weekends um, so we, I think we got about 
probably five months into the tour before anyone twigged that we weren't doing anything weekends oh, before also, we started yeah. for, for duties. And uh, so it was a pretty cushy tour. But more importantly, it opened my eyes up to that other side of um, soldiering special duties, mm-hmm. uh, which I eventually ended up going, the road I ended up taking. Awesome, man. So uh, what, looking back on your military career then, what, what would be like, what sticks out as like a real high point? What's like, oh, I'm mega chuffed I got to do that or see that? or oh, un- Undoubtedly, um, Charlie Company, section commander, going into Iraq on the first night. Uh, un- unbelievable job. Mm-hmm. Being a section commander at war is, uh, is incredible. It's the best job in the whole world. So that's, that's, that's a massive highlight, uh, taking a section of young lads, um, getting on the helicopters, and flying into the Alpha mm. uh, with Charlie Company. It was amazing. Awesome, man. Awesome. Also, throughout my, you know, there's, all through my life, all I've ever wanted to be is brave. <laughs> and um, I've, always, I've always assumed I was a coward. And, and it, it, me, my dad was a... Um, uh, my dad was a violent alcoholic and he used to beat uh, my mum up quite, you know, prop, yeah, you know, proper 1970s wife beating, right? Yeah, and uh, my mum used to this is from when I was a top, my mum used to cry for me to come and help her, and I'd stand there I petrified. And um, I f- that, that obviously had an impact on how I saw myself. and there was a point uh, we was on the corner of a building and um, I was like, I had me two entrymen, I was like, right, go, go. And the lad shouted, Schnaggle, he was like, I can't, I can't, they're shooting at me. Now apparently, and I say apparently so I can't remember saying it, uh, I shouted, uh, oh, fucking shooting back, <laughs> And that sounds more like Titch called my two I see was like called Titch Call Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, then went SBS and was yeah they have he was on a television program with his bike shop down at Port Harbour. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, Titch was my two I see. And that sounds more like something he'd say. Mm. But he said it, he didn't say it and there was like a whole, whole company HQ on the other side of a bum line and they all heard me say it, apparently. So I'll take the word for it. Take anyway, it, it's yeah. like, he was like fucking shooting back, dickhead. Um but there was that thing where, as a corporal, you can't order anyone round into a into mm-hmm. coming fire. You have to lead your section. And um, I've sort of gathered myself up, went, right, we're going to peel, and uh, I'll go first. And I ran round that corner and then um, done a couple of bounds and went down uh, and took up a fire position up against this wall. And the whole time that I went round there, I was expecting to get shot. In hindsight, I don't think we was in that cheekier mm-hmm. contact. I don't think it was that bad. But at the point, I know, I know how I felt at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I know, I I stared, uh, stared down the barrel and, and done it anyway. And that changed the way I looked at myself because I... But you're still looking at yourself in quite a negative way then. Yeah, yeah. It's, Even it's, it's, like the early years of the call. I still do. I still do. But I, I um, it's it's part of me. Uh, I, I, 
When you talk to people, mm. no one has a great opinion of themselves. You know, it's, it's all varying degrees of mm-hmm. self-esteem that we all suffer from. You get the odd person who's uber-confident on the inside, not what they show on the outside. outside yeah. uh, you get the odd person like that, and they tend to be arseholes. <laughs> Fair one. <laughs> you don't, I don't yeah. know why. But, um, but I, you know, it's all varying degrees, mm-hmm. but I think I kind of know that I've always suffered from quite bad, low self-esteem. I was sort of writing a book at the moment. Awesome. And um, I got to a point and I thought, oh, I'll best tell Claire, my wife, this. Like, we've been together since we were 16. And uh, I was suicidal as um, a, a young teenager, quite badly. And she didn't know. She had no idea. So I've never spoken about it and never talked about it. But that's, you know, it's been quite bad. Mm. Um, and... How and I still feel the same. I ain't changed, but I use evidence now. Like, and that's what becoming a bootneck gave me. So I could look in the mirror and go, "You're a Royal Marines commando," and that means something. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of you've all we've all got that. You know, what are you going to do when the bullets start flying? You know, I joined in '92, and the corps ain't done anything really since um, there was a couple of you know, contacts probably in the first Iraq war in um, 89, 90. But the Corps hadn't really done anything since the Falklands. And, you know, it was all, it it was basically Northern Ireland. There was quite a few contacts in Northern Ireland. But you're always thinking, how am I going to react? How am I going to do it? How am I going to be able to do my job when people start shooting at you? And that always, always that doubt well, it was kind of turbocharged with me because I didn't have that doubt, actually. I kind of assumed that I was a coward. And having that, because I know what I was thinking when I went around the corner, the fact that I kind of looked in hindsight and I don't think it was as bad as everybody was saying. Yeah. Um, And, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. But I can use that much like looking yourself in the mirror and going, you're a Royal Marines commander and that meaning something. I now look and go, well, you're not a coward. There's your evidence. Mm-hmm. Where's your evidence for me being a coward? And, 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 and that's that's how I deal with it. And it works. I'm, you know, happy. Mate, it sounds like, uh, I always I always talk about, uh, I'm a big fan of David Goggins. I don't know if you heard of David Goggins. He has something similar. It's called a cookie jar, he calls it. And it's all the, t- the things you, the, the hardships you've been through and he puts it into a cookie jar. So when he's having that moment of doubt, like for you, you're looking in the mirror and you're like, you're questioning maybe certain aspects. He does the same, but then he, he thinks back and he goes, hang on, I did this, this and this. And it's like, you, you, you look back on that and you go, hang on, I'm the guy which fucking led from the front, going around that corner, going into essentially, who knows, you know, so. I genuinely... Uh, I'm not over-dramatising it. Well, I am over-dramatising it because it wasn't like that, but I'm being truthful on how I felt. Mm. And that's, that's the important thing. I was genuinely expecting to get shot and thrown back as I went back, as I went back in that corner. And uh, this was before full play mm. body armour, so you had the little square. <laughs> yeah. the arm, you know. I actually know someone got shot in one. 
Okay. And, uh, and I was like, yeah. And uh, I sort of went around a corner. And, and I say I've stared death down twice. Um, and that's one of them. Although death actually probably wasn't there. But he in my yeah. mind, he was. And that's the important thing. And that's, that's, that was, that's the, I always felt that as well that I, I, uh, I didn't really belong in the core. I've never, never felt that um, that I deserve to be here. Even now, right? And this, you, the thing is, you got to remember that how awesome bootnecks are. And and I, I worked for ten years in the tri service unit, so I worked with every single cat badge you can imagine, and probably the cream of those cat badges, mm. and. So I, I'm saying this is not just an indoctrinated mm. young kid who's like, oh, the bootnecks are best, powers are crap, you know. I don't, I'm not like that. This is a real analytical mm-hmm. uh, way of, of looking at it. And, and, and after looking at it, I can say that actually bootnecks are, and all the statistics, you know, about 47% of UKSF badged are bootnecks. Mm. We are in shoulders above everyone else, and that's a hard environment to to be a normal person, isn't it? Because mm. you're surrounded by exceptional people. Do you think? Um, do you think, like, for example, I like you're saying there, like how you felt like you you didn't belong in that because you are a sense, like you know, it's alpha males bootnecks, and, and we do, and bootnecks do tend to achieve. <laughs> Some fucking awesome, awesome things. Like, I always look back as well and think I was the one guy who slipped through the net. Like, I shouldn't have passed out. And I know in my own mind that I'm like, oh, no, you you pass out for a reason. But the way I always look at it, and this is whenever I achieve something no, which is good. Saying, and you genuinely slipped through the net. Yeah, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, someone told me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I've got to go. Um... <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I tend to do this on, on, on when I do something good and someone goes good effort there I'll, I'll always put it down to like oh, I just got lucky right I've, I've got four Guinness World Records right? I smashed the able-bodied record for rowing across the Atlantic which is pretty cool and pretty good and then you, you, just when you start to think oh, actually I'm someone then you hear about another bootneck who does it blind comes across the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. And then you meet another bootneck who's done it. And then, do you know how many bootnecks have rowed across the, an ocean? There's tons of them. Is there? Yeah, it's, it's literally like no one does it. It's just, there's the ratio of people, right? Ratio of people who have climbed Everest to row across an ocean, right? It's 20 to 1, right? You do it solo, mm. people have rowed across an ocean solo to people. It, it's approaching 200 to 1, right? It's how many of them are bootnecks? Yeah. There's tons of them. And it, it's led me to, I, I can say with utter pride, and I mean this, utter pride, say, 
I'm an average bootleg. Mm. And if you can say that, if you can say, yeah, I'm pretty average in the core, mm. <laughs> that that means something. That really, really does. Yeah, fucking when you when you when you break it down like that, yeah, fucking hell, mate. So um, yeah. So let's uh, let's let's move on to uh, on to basically why you know the the crux of the story here. So uh, I don't know if you want to just basically tell the story on on how how it happened how, in twenty fourteen. Yeah, twenty fourteen. I was um, I was travelling back to work. I was uh, working up in Chitsands at the time um, after a particularly good Christmas leave so it was a Sunday night uh, I left uh, here in Devon where we are now and um, about half hour into my journey I got a flat tyre on the A30 near Oakhampton and I pulled over on the side of the road I got a T4 van and it was an awful night it was wet windy blowing and uh, I couldn't jack my van up because mm. uh, like, the jack was just sinking in, so it's a soft verge. Yeah, and I rang up. I thought, oh, this is going to be a, this is going to be an uh, awful journey. This I ain't going to get into like two, three in the morning, four in the morning. And I thought, oh, what the hell? So I called um, a breakdown service uh, to come and help me because I couldn't jack me wheel up, uh, and there was nowhere I could pull in to actually get somewhere hard to jack the wheel. Excuse me. And they said they were on their way, but I wasn't a priority. Huh. Uh, well, you know, if you're a single... Yeah, you know, I get it, yeah. Yeah, or a family. So I was like, right, well, I'll do as much as I can. And uh, I sort of undone the nuts. I thought, right, so right, I'll try and jack it up. So I jacked it up and it started rising up enough. And I thought, right, I'll try and get it off. And before I did, I took a photo of the uh, wheel, um, like the uh, the car jacked up at the mm-hmm. back, and the wheel half off, and uh, I thought, well, I'll take that off, so I, I took it off as quickly as I could, and all the time it's just sinking down oh. really slowly, and I just, just inched, uh, in fact, less than inches, millimetres, got the other wheel on, done up the nuts, and I thought, well, I'm good to go, yeah. I've got to change the wheel, I thought, brilliant. And before I rang up the breakdown services, look, I managed to, try, you know, cancelled it. I managed to change the wheel. And I put on Facebook, genuinely, I put a picture of me, um, like, car jacked up and went, uh, could this journey get any worse? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. I then cracked on. And then um, about midnight, I got to uh, the M3, just for the M24. Saw a car from quite a way back. It had, um, obviously... First of all, you see the hazard lights and they're in the wrong position. So I slowed down because you know that, that looks odd. I started to slow down. Then I, you know, I could see that this car had crashed and it had crashed into the central reservation. There was a lot of debris, bumpers hanging out in the middle of the road. Um, so I pulled over. Now this car, it was a BMW 5 Series. It was straddling the uh, fast lane and the middle lane, kind of pointing at the central mm-hmm. reservation at an odd angle. Um, I pulled over. And then anyone else pulled over at this yeah, stage? Yeah, another car pulled yeah. over. I got out, and th- this guy was on the phone. I was like, are you on the phone to the emergency services? He says, yeah. So I thought, right, well, I don't have to do But I was thinking, if there's anyone stuck in that car, mm-hmm. they're in real danger. So I said, is there anyone in the car? And he says, no, no, they're all back there, I think. And I walked back about 10 yards, 
and it was a it was three poles. It was a, two Polish guys and a very heavily pregnant um, Polish woman. And uh, I was like, "Is there anyone left in the car?" And I was like, "No, no, we're all out." Uh, now, as you know, anyone who's done Afghan or Iraq, you get a real high level uh, training in first aid. Mm-hmm. I counted myself as a very competent first aider. And I was checking them over, making sure they, they there wasn't any fit, anything physical, but any thinking about internal injuries, especially with a pregnant mm. woman. But it, it comes to a point where there's nothing I can really do here. Uh, so I'll just walk down the hard shoulder using the torch on my phone to warn oncoming traffic. Uh, so I explained that's what I was going to do. And I said, look, if anyone starts to feel sick or gets dizzy or anything, just shout and I'll come running back. And I literally finished that sentence, turn to go. And I heard an enormous bang and lots of screaming. Then I felt myself almost simultaneously hit. And then I could feel myself moving with all this noise, screaming. And I probably got about four, three, four minutes worth of thinking that could only have been a couple of seconds. And because uh, everything slows right down. First of all, I was trying to work out what had happened. And I knew that I was on the hard shoulder. Heard a bang, felt myself hit, could hear screaming. So I, I thought I'd been hit by a car, mm. or a lorry, actually. So it felt like I'd been hit all down one side uh, at the same time, instead of like just on the, you know, mm. where you'd feel that you'd been hit by a car. Um, and uh, the other thing I kept telling myself was, in a minute, this movement, because I could feel myself movement, is going to stop. And you've got to check yourself over, got to check yourself over for injuries. And I kind of came to a... Stand, not stand still and kneel still so I was kneeling down and uh, sort of patting myself down and I don't know why in my head I had um, I thought that something had happened to my jaw uh, like it had been smashed off I don't I have no idea why uh, and I sort of like touched my face and I thought right that's all okay and I patted down and I looked down and my right leg um, was kind of behind me you know when you kneel your legs going behind mm-hmm. you but my left leg was going off at a right angle to where it should be and it took me two looks. I remember looking at it and thinking, this ain't not quite right with what I'm seeing here. Mm-hmm. And it was a proper comical double take. When I was <laughs> and then I shouted, medic. Like, medic! And as I was shouting, part of me was thinking, where did that come from? Because I can't remember making a conscious decision shouting it. Mm. And I'd not been in um, Afghan for two years at that point. Our last tour was 2012. I've done three tours. My last tour was 2012. I thought, where did that come from? And I was thinking, as this was happening, in training, amazing that I that just happened. And then my next thought was, well, no one's going to react to that. So no one knows what <laughs> yeah. you mean. So I then shouted, I need medical attention. <laughs> and I, and I thought, well, now I just sound stupid. <laughs> and I kind of rolled backwards down a hill, which surprised me. And then I crawled underneath uh, the barrier back onto the hard shoulder and that's where I saw my right leg had gone um, from about two inches, three inches above where my ankle would have been. Mm-hmm. Well, my actual foot was hanging on but it, it, yeah. just by like flaps of skin it had gone. I was like, oh, shit, my leg's gone. But that's not the important thing here. I knew that I had between seven and 12 minutes to stop the bleed. I was like, bleed out? So it was like mm. blood was just going everywhere. And uh, what happened is the car that had crashed in the central reservation, the BMW 5 Series, an Audi A6 Sport hit it with such force 
it is spanning three times and the engine came Jesus. flying out, engine block and gearbox complete came flying out of this uh, uh, BMW. Hit me, took me leg off and knocked me about 12 metres over the barrier onto the grass verge. That's that, was the bang, that's, yeah. that was the movement I could feel. Um, I didn't know that at the time, so I was laying there and I'm looking, there's this smashed up car on one side and an engine on the other. I was thinking, how, how has that happened? Mm. <laughs> but um, almost immediately, a kind of pickup truck, you know, if you break down, like a breakdown mm. recovery vehicle pulled up next to me and he put the, um, the flashing yellow lights on and the guy jumps out. Uh, I felt a little bit more secure laying there on the hard shoulder. And the guy said, right, so I said, yeah, I need a tourniquet now on my leg. And he looked at me and says, look, I'm going to be sick. Uh, I, I can't go down there. And like, I, was, I was trying to explain to him the difference between him being sick and me dying. Yeah. And, right, I'm, I'm being facetious now. But, uh, actually, I get where he was coming from. Because he kept saying, oh, no, the ambulance will be here in a minute. The ambulance will be here in a minute. And I knew that... I didn't have the time for the ambulance to turn up. I knew that I didn't. But it felt like it would have been the easiest thing in the world to just drift back and just go, yeah, do you know what? The ambulance will be in a minute. And it was a struggle to go, no, I need a tourniquet. So although I kind of get his kind of thought patterns and why he was saying it like that, uh, but um, all the time I'm bleeding out and I'm, counting down the classic symptoms of um, shock, pins and needles mm-hmm. in your fingers and then numbness. And I could feel myself going into shock. And uh, I was going to use my torch and my phone. I hadn't let go of my phone. It was still in my hand. And I, I'm a family man. I've got a wife and two kids. And I thought briefly, very, very briefly, about making that phone yeah. call. And I think if I'd have made that call, then, you know, that would have been an admission to the universe, the tarmac, the storm, whatever, that this was a fight I wasn't going to win. And I know if I'd have made that, I wouldn't be in now. And it was at that point um, when my guardian angel, uh, for want of a better uh, her phrase turned up, you know, out of the dark. It was a, uh, a Rastafarian called Frank uh, from Hackney. He said, uh, do you need any help? I said, yeah, I need a tourniquet now. And my leg whipped off his belt. We couldn't get it tight enough. Um, so I got his uh, his daughter. He had his adult daughter with him, Zanelli. I got her to stand on me femoral, to stand mm-hmm. on me groin and put all of her weight on me. And which he did, and that stopped the blood. And then um, the guy who had the phone was on the phone to the ambulance. Mm. He came up, and I looked at him, and he looked bigger. And Frank was still trying his hardest to get the tourniquet. I got him uh, to stand on it, because he looked heavier, mm. and it looked like he'd be more effective. Bef- before, he, uh, before I got to Nelly to stand, when we could get the tourniquet tight enough, I thought about sending Frank back to my van to get my uh, wrench, tyre wrench that I'd used to change my tyre earlier in the journey and use it as a windlass. Mm-hmm. But I know that if he'd have gone to my van, which is probably about 40 metres away, and back again, I'd have been unconscious when he got back. And I'm not over-dramatising it. I 
genuinely the only word I can use that describes that moment was I could feel the abyss there. It was there as a real tangible thing right next to me. And uh, so I stared down death twice. twice yeah. That was the second time. I stared death in the face genuinely. And I know that because when the ambulance finally came, I'd lost so much blood that to fly, uh, they couldn't move me by um, ambulance because I'd lost so much blood. They had to actually get uh, plasma into me at the side of the road. And then they took me by helicopter um, to the hospital. And I subsequently found out that I'd lost over half my body's blood. Approaching half is when people die. Mm. I'd gone beyond that. So I actually was genuinely staring into the abyss. Fucking hell, mate. Do you um do you keep in touch with Frank and his Yeah, yeah obviously. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of my brother. Yeah, man, he's fucking us. Is there any part of you which which regrets pulling over? Because most people when they see something when no. they see something on the road, they're kinda of like, ah, and they'll keep driving. No, no. The circumstances, the exact circumstances of that, I don't know anyone that wouldn't pull over. Mm-hmm. Um and I think every car did. Frank pulled over and was walking back when the car accident happened. The second car mm-hmm. crashed in. He heard, saw it all, saw the bang, heard me shout, I need medical assistance. <laughs> I need medical assistance. He was with his uh, daughter. So he's grabbed his daughter. First thought was you say, mm-hmm. daughter. Dragged her, put her in the car, and they drove off. Now, how many people would do this? He's kind of like, I. he's done his duty, he'd stopped, but obviously it's his first yeah. car, he's got his daughter out of this, it's dangerous. He went, that man shouted for help. And he drove for how long, I don't know. And then pulled over again and walked back. If Frank hadn't walked back, I wouldn't be here mm. now. And he got there just, just in time. Fucking hell, In answer to your question, though, um... I'm more than prepared to go through life with one leg. Mm. Right? I'm not prepared to go through life being someone who doesn't stop to help. Mate, it's like, um, yeah. But Fuck. That, would you like to be that person? No, of course not. I think... Then, um, then, it, you, then your, your answer would be exactly the same as mine. Yeah. Mom. You know, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only asking that because the amount of times people... People always think, oh, someone else will help, or someone else will stop. You know, obviously that that situation there, which you've seen, was, was obviously maybe a little bit more than just someone's got a flat tire or whatever. You know, you always see people on the, on the hard shoulder, flat tire, and people just they just crack on. Uh, that's the only reason I asked that was like, you know, because shortly after I, I started walking again, I was walking with because my left leg was really badly damaged, um, as well as losing my right leg below the knee. So when I first started walking with a prosthetic for the first six months or so, I had crutches. So I was walking with crutches. But I could drive. I got my driving licence back. And me and my wife were driving um, near Plymouth. And there's a big roundabout uh, over the A38. And as we was going around this roundabout, there was this like, crappy car in front of us pulling this even crappier, <laughs> rusty heap of uh, trailer. And as it was going around the corner, this wheel on the trailer just kind of sort of 
came off and started mm. going and the trailer tipped and started sparks going everywhere. And I just pulled over like that. And my wife went, what are you doing? <laughs> I went, I don't know. There's nothing, there's literally nothing I can do mm. because to walk, I'm using both yeah. hands. <laughs> I'm of no use whatsoever in this situation. I had to go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and then I sort of pulled off. It wasn't like a major yeah. incident. There was no one injured or involved. or But it's just that, that instinct, that gut reaction is to just pull over. And uh, yeah, I hope I'll never lose that. Fuck <laughs> oh, me. That's a great testament to your character though, isn't it? That... I think it's the same as everybody. The difference is with me is I, I've had time and the inclination to rationalise it. And you'd be no different. And 99.9% of your listeners are just going to be the same. Mm. The difference, the only difference is, is I can rationalise it and articulate it. Mm. Does that make sense? No, it does. It Absolutely. Um, so how was the, uh, the recovery process, both physically and, and mentally then? Uh, fine. Um, I woke up, now, now, we, we all know people, um, every soldier knows someone, mm. or I'd say many people, who have struggled with mental health um, problems post-conflicts. And you're never out of the woods. You know, it could come, hit you, whenever. So, so far, touch wood, it hasn't. Um, but when I woke up, I genuinely woke up in hospital and um, I was like yes I'm here because I knew mm. the fight and I knew how close that fight was the night before and how, how much of a close run thing that was so when I woke up in hospital I was like yes I'm alive I've lost my leg but I'm here You're alive yeah and I, I wonder if I'd have woken up not knowing what had happened and having been told you know woken up and going, oh what happened where am I you know, really sorry, Mr. Spencer, you lost your leg. Um, whether that would have taken me on a different tra- mm. tra- trajectory, trajectory, I suspect it might not, but you never know. Mm. But, yeah, so I threw myself into a thought, right, I, I thought, and this kind of can't define the next part of my life, actually, is, I'd always define myself by physicality, what I could do physically. And six months before this happened, uh, so in um, June 2013, I live in uh, Holbridge, which is the old Maricourts, the 4-2 commander, and uh, there's lots of bootnecks living in the village, and there was a young lad uh, called Dom, uh, Dom Lovett, he would, I don't know if you heard about the lad who got uh, pissed up and then dived in a snowdrift and broke his neck. There was a rock in the snowdrift. No. Um, and they were, like, he lived in the village. And the absolute uh, top of his field in um, robotics, he's in Plymouth University, and they were looking at getting a robotic exoskeleton to give him a little bit of uh, his um, upper body movement, a little bit more. Uh, dexterity and uh, and I were looking at about 70, 80,000. Well, a group of bootnecks in the village put together, like, right, let's see if we can 
Dosang and I, um, a few years before, I ran a marathon on Christmas Eve running from Mokampton camp to the local pub. It's 26 miles, bang on, mm -hmm. all cross-country over the moor. It ended up like a big bump of snow. And the first part from Oakham to the post was you took me uh, night in training about two and a half hours, mm. seven hours. Fucking hell. Day. I was in absolute clip at the halfway point. But I thought, anyway, so I'd already run a marathon, so I thought, I can't do that. And because of that fat idiot, uh, Eddie Izzard, who'd done 47 marathons in 47 yeah. days, thought, I can't do two marathons on consecutive days because it looks... Looks gash compared yeah, to him, yeah. Compared to what he did. So I thought, oh, the only thing I can do is two marathons then. So I ran 52 miles. I set up at midnight from the local pub, got to Oakhampton, Battle Camp about I-5 in the morning, turned around and ran back. Awesome. And so I defined myself by what I could do physically. Mm. And then the next day I woke up as a disabled person and I thought, the, uh, well, that's it. I'm, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I'm going to have to redefine who I am but within the parameters of disability. And then I set off trying to be the best disabled person I could be. Um, and I set myself a goal in the first year of losing my leg to raise £10,000 for Romney's charity. And I've done my, my first mile uh, sponsored walk. Um, I'd done with uh, the call doing the uh, free, coincided with the 350 mm -hmm. uh, celebrations in 2014. And they were doing the uh, the speed marches, and the last one I'd done in London, I'd done the first mile with them, and things like that. Put on a few. Um, I, I played the guitar, and I, I had like a couple of. I had a band called White Said Frank and the Wankettes. <laughs> we used to like make up rude and offensive, very offensive words to well-known songs. Yeah. And we put on a couple of concerts in local pubs and that. Awesome. Like, it's just full of bootlegs, and. Uh, you know, raise like, you know, each one would raise about 1,500 quid, you know, auctions and things like that. But got there, got 12,000 in the first year. And then after that, I was kind of thinking, just as I was approaching the end of the year and I'd smashed me £10,000 um, goal, I was just thinking, right, what am I going to do next? And I got a uh, uh, an email asking for volunteers to put together the first all-amputee crew to row across the Atlantic and um, I rewind my first admission into Headley Court it's like if, if anyone's ever been there or if you've ever uh, visited anyone there it's like hospital world mm -hmm. and uh, in the bed opposite me in this um, in the room I was in was this guy has a massive beard no legs uh, and he'd just come back from rowing the Atlantic with a crew of like two able-bodied and two disabled and that was the first inclination that I got that it was still possible to do mm. adventurous things now I'd lost my leg I thought that life had gone completely and because of that conversation I had with him the lad was called Cal Royce um, I immediately when I got the email asking volunteers uh, put my name down then went through a, a protracted uh, selection process and then I got named a member of the crew and in uh, December 2015, so just under two years mm. after I lost my leg, we set off with Cal, who I met on my first admission. He skippered us across because this was the second time we went across. 
uh, we set off from Lagomero in the Canaries, and 46 days later, and via Hurricane Alex, the okay. first hurricane in the Atlantic in January for 78 years. What what are the chances? Yeah. Are via Hurricane Alex, we got across in 46 days. Wow. And uh, more importantly, it changed my life. It changed... Um, I thought I had to define who I was, redefine who I mm-hmm. was. And the person I was, I thought I had gone. And it was only rowing that kind of made me realise, you're still the same person. Mm. You know, there's a bit less of me now. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit... I'm worse at, you know, I'm a bit worse at dancing. Mm-hmm. But actually, I'm still the same person, fundamentally. And unless you've lost that sense of self, that thing that probably everybody takes for granted, you know, that thing that sits at the very core of your being, mm. unless you've lost that, I can't explain to you how important it is regaining that sense of self. And it also in a way, it made me think a little bit about uh, how we define, as a society, define disabled people. Like No one else is defined by something they're rubbish at or mm-hmm. they're good at. Like, you never say, oh, do you know uh, Smudge? Smudge who's, Smudge who's never going to be a, a, yeah. a, an, an astronaut. Yeah. You know? No one's ever defined by the negative. But if you are disabled, not always, mm-hmm. but in general and mostly, if you're disabled, that does come to define you. And that's where I got the idea for the next um, adventure, really, which was I sort of set up myself and started myself, and I called it the Rowing Marine. And there was a able-bodied record for rowing the Atlantic, but from mainland Europe to mainland South America, solo and unsupported. And it was set in 2002 by a Norwegian called Steinhoff, and he'd done it in 96 days, 12 hours and 45 minutes. And I thought that that, there was a good chance I could beat that record. Mm. And I thought if I could beat that record, as a disabled person, if I could beat an able-bodied record in something as uh, physically demanding as Mm. rowing across an ocean in a rowing boat on your own, then that would send a massive statement that no one should be defined by disability. So that's really what set me off on the next uh, uh, row. And that, you, had a, you had a few trials and tribulations building up to that? Yeah, I, I got... Um, I was due to go on the... Uh, I set the date as the 18th of January 2018. And on the 15th... Um, actually, I'll rewind. On the 14th, so four days before I was due to go, uh, I was out in Gibraltar, I was going to go from Gibraltar through the Straits and then out into the Atlantic and across to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. This is before Venezuela properly went down yeah. to Japan. Um, and uh, four days before my mum was in hospital, I got a phone call from my sister, I have been monitoring what was going on. My sister said, uh, right, she's going to be fine, she had a really good night, she's going to be out of hospital, if not late one today, definitely tomorrow. Focus on the road. Mm. And uh, I was like, okay, so I switched off from everything that was going on there. And then um, the next day, so three days before, on the 15th of Jan, I got a phone call from my sister and the morning said that my mum had had a really rough night. And uh, they waited for the doctor to come round. got a phone call from her uh, an hour or so later to say the doctor had been, basically said, well, not basically, said, um, 
there's nothing they could do for her. He said, make her as comfortable as they could to the end. So I immediately dropped everything, got on the first flight I could, which was that afternoon back to the UK. Uh, but unfortunately, whilst I was in the air, my mum died. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is part of life, unfortunately. Dealt with everything that needed to be dealt with. Um, and then I uh, postponed the boat, put it back a year, and went out in December. Uh, November actually, set a new date as the middle of December and just looked out at the sea, waiting for the weather to change to give me the opportunity to get through the straits and now didn't happen, so postponed it again. Flew back out to Gibraltar in uh, the beginning of January, so straight after New Year in 2019, so this is last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a phone call from the weather router and he said, look, I can't see anything that's going to allow you to go through the straits and out into the Atlantic. He goes, but if you can get to Portugal tomorrow, there's a perfect weather window. Um, so managed to uh, pack the boat up. Well, actually, I rode it round the corner into Spain because it was easier to do that than crossing the border yeah. from Gibraltar to Spain. Pulled the boat out of the water in um, uh, in Spain, put it on the on the trailer. Drove it to Portugal, put it back in the water, and then the next day uh, set off. Fucking hell. A couple of bootnecks in uh, Ivor Morgan, and he was the uh, SBS storeman. I know him all my career, but he was the SBS storeman uh, in uh, Gibraltar. He's a, like, a massive character. Him and uh, Gaz Lawrence of PTI, they were living out there, they mega squared me away. Like. Uh, but yeah, set off on the uh, 9th of January um, 2019. How are you? Uh... How were your nerves setting out? Or did, or did it? Did you not really have the nerves too much then because it was a bit of a fast ball? You need to get to Portugal now. Do you think that helped you that you didn't then start? I'd, I'd had it. I'd had the row like a dread. Imagine like we was talking earlier about that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach, that dread of going back to Limston yeah. and training, like like that, but a bit more mm. for about a year. I had the row set over me so. It was good to just finally get on and do it, mm -hmm. and uh, it all—it was all going perfectly. It took uh, to get to that point was about two and a half years, the hardest I've worked on anything ever. And uh, five days in, all of my navigation systems all collapsed, and I had to get down to—I got devastating news um, from the engineer that I'd have to call into the Canaries on my way through. I thought then that was the end of the record, mm. um, but Guinness um, confirmed that ocean rowing records are um, unsupported, so solo if you're on your own and unsupported, not solo, unsupported and non-stop, but you are allowed to call in for repairs, Okay, but the clock's still ticking. Oh, okay. So I'm up against it anyway as a disabled person trying to beat an able body record but then you got the added pressure of the whole time you're there you're losing time yeah. and it's just making something which is pretty difficult to do even harder and then two days out from um, uh, the Canaries I uh, a bloke called Ralph Tewitt who's a um, really experienced ocean rower he set off from Portugal to try and beat me across to get the record. 
so not only was I up against it, but I came down in a race. Yeah. And then how, how long were you in the Canaries then getting Five it? Five days, two days to find and fix the fault. <sighs> then three days waiting for a decent weather window to get clear of the islands. And then uh, I set off again. So when, when you're in the Canaries, you, you just, what, checked them into a hotel? Yeah. You, you um, literally... Right, Cal Royce, who I rode with, mm. um, he dropped everything and flew out. I didn't know he was coming. Ivor Morgan, he flew out. And the missus flew out. And they were all ready there. They got a boat to see me in. To come awesome. in St Paul, um, got got in, uh, helped me find fix the folks, uh, and then as soon as I could set off again. And uh, Ralph Tuin, he had problems with his battery. So two weeks after I'd gone, mm. he came into the Canaries, and he didn't come out again. Now I I set off from the Canaries. The routine I was working was uh, two hours on, one hour off. Uh, during the day and at night, I went the two on, two off. Mm. And uh, every time I got out in those orders for two hours, it was like, I just had this thought in my mind of a weather system coming in and blowing me forward and Ralph backwards. But for the want of effort, I'd end up on this side getting blown back mm-hmm. with him. And that drove me. So every time I got on the oars, I was thrashing myself. Um and I like to think, I ain't asked him, but I like to think Ralph saw the speed I was going and thought, that record's gone. I can't. He weren't rowing, he weren't raising money for anything he wasn't doing. He was just literally going for the record. That was his only interest. Um, and I, I, yeah, I set off. Again. And you were doing two two to one during the day, yeah. and then two, fucking hell, mate. Two on, two off at night. The weather was... Uh, Horrific. The waves were so so big. Spent days petrified, constantly. Like I remember spending three days just petrified. So a lot of the time, you know, the alarm would go off at night, and I'd open up the hatch and I ain't getting out of there, close it down. It was just horrific really? out there. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And, and you know, when you're on your like your, your two hours off, like this might be a mega bone question. You're just letting. No. The element, yeah, I'm not, it's not a bone question. Um, the if the boat goes side on to waves, you're gonna get tipped, you, you roll, yeah. And if you roll in, then bits are flying off it, and it's a bad place to be. Uh, my uh, the you had a like an auto helm mm-hmm. which sort of steers the boat in, so you plug in like you put in a point a thousand miles away, and it will steer to that point. So it doesn't propel you, it just keeps you facing that point. Oh, okay. and I, right, that's the, something... The waves and the wind, so the, it, you'll be moving. Yeah, due but, to the natural yeah, element, yeah. But obviously not that fast. Uh, it'd probably take you about a year to get fast. <laughs> um, but you're moving, and there's enough movement to actually keep the boat facing the way you want. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with the... Uh, when I didn't have an auto home, you can lock the rudder off. Mm-hmm. So you've got two speeds and the faster you're going, the more action the rudder has and turns you more. So I'd have to row and, and set the rudder, um, like lock it off so it's set for like rowing speed. And then during the off period, because you're going slower, it, the boat's going at a different angle. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to set it again. It'd take about 10 minutes. Oh. Of, you're literally talking about a millimetre, but you get good at doing it. Um, and this is biting into your time off now. Yeah, but yeah. it is what it is. Um, and then 
uh, when the auto home was going, I'd say probably every every other night, sometimes a couple of times a night, the alarms would all be going off and you'd wake up. Now, this is the critical time because um, if you become detached from the boat, you're dead. Yeah. It, you, it may as well be in outer space without a shadow, mm. you know. Um, so you'd have to get your, 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 the alarms are going off because the boat's side on to the waves, so it's in a critical, dangerous position. You get your life jacket on, generally naked, because you ain't got time to put anything on, so you just put your life jacket on, I've got a strop, and then you're opening up the hatch now, if it turns now, like the boats are designed to right, but if the hatch is open, yeah. it ain't righting, it's staying that way, and it, everything's flooded, and all the electrics, everything gone. And so then you're in a world of hurt as well. So you have to hook on and get out and get that hatch closed as quickly as humanly possible. Then you start rowing (coughs) so that you've got some... Because once, as soon as you go side on, you you get caught, it's called going into irons, where everything, the waves, the wind, everything is pushing on the side of the boat. So it holds it there. It's mm-hmm. quite hard. It can be quite difficult to get it out of irons. You have to get a bit of speed going up, going side on, and then turn yeah. the bug that way. And then once you're going, you set the rudder, and then you have to sort out the auto arm, which was at the end of the bow. Fucking hell. That, that, that would happen sometimes a couple of times a night. Sometimes you go two nights without it happening, but it was a regular thing. Like for months and months afterwards, when I was asleep, I didn't. <laughs> the alarms going. Fucking. Was it? Was there any? Ah, again, maybe another bone question. Was there any moments during that when you went, ah, I can't. I'm not going to do this. As in, one, you're not going to beat the record, or two, you were just like, I'm, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to finish. You, you couldn't think about beating the record because the ocean is so. The, the problem with it is, you've got to approach this with the thought that the Atlantic Ocean will go, not you, not this time, and it doesn't matter who you are, what equipment you've got, you ain't doing it. Hmm. Um, and you have to have that in the back of your mind. No one's bigger than the ocean, you know? So that that's always at the back of your mind. Um, the hardest moment, really, uh was I, I came up with a, a coping strategy for the fear. The fear was becoming crippling. It was making me unattainable. It, it weren't working. I, I couldn't function. Um, I've, I've been, um, you know, been to war four times. Mm. And I've been in trickier and more dangerous situations. But being scared when you're a part of a team and a collective, is completely different to being scared when you're on your own. And you've got to remember as well, there were points where the closest human being to me was in the International Space Station. (laughs) I was the only human for hundreds of miles. You know, and and if something had gone wrong and I'd managed to get a mayday out, it might take, you know, a week Mm -hmm. for someone to get to me. Um, But... I came up with a coping strategy and it was distraction. I would distract myself. So any bit of morale, anything, um, it might be food, your favourite song, tunes or whatever, uh, I saved for those moments when the weather was horrific and 
that old snaffle me favourite snacks mm. or <laughs> listen to me favourite music or you know a podcast or, or, or a audio book as soon as I get to a, like a page turner I'd stop it then and wait for mm. and, and that's what got me through that but and then you, you kind of it's going well it was going incredibly well and then two weeks from the end I hit the wall and um, now the problem with the end, the last two weeks, it's dominated by three factors. The first factor was there's a massive current that goes up the coast of South America. Mm-hmm. Now to counter that, we dropped planned to drop 150 miles south to use that to come up into where I was finishing. Now that calculation was based on how fast I was going one way and how fast the current was going the other. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I had to keep that same pace coming in. And that was uh, a non-negotiable. You couldn't change that. Um, If I didn't keep that same pace, then I'd been pushed too far north by the current Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't come in where I was supposed to come in. And that would have meant... uh, North of Cayenne, I was finishing in Cayenne, in the French Guiana, Mm -hmm. is for, like... Hundreds of miles north of where I wanted to come in, it's just mangrove swamps. There weren't even a beach where I could just land yeah. and then charter a boat to come and get me and tow me back. It was just nowhere to land. Um, so I had to keep the same pace because of that current. The second thing that really um, made that challenging was underneath the bum, you get barnacles growing. Yep. And you're supposed to get out of that every week, two weeks. Get them off. And scrape them off. I managed to get out once in my after the canaries, and then the waves were just too big for it being too dangerous mm. to get out of the boat. Uh, so I got a big build up of barnacles underneath the boat, which meant I had to, uh, it slowed the boat down half a knot to a knot. Bear in mind if you're rowing at three and a half to four and a half it's knots. A, it's a big deal. That's, yeah. you know, so a quarter, almost a quarter, mm. I lost. In speed, bear in mind, I've still got to keep that same pace. Mm. That current as well, that changed the way the sea was acting. And you'd be rowing, and you've got like the general waves are coming from like the normal swell. And then it would be, you ever been in like a swimming pool with a wave machine? Mm-hmm. It's not so much waves, it's just like the, the, the water just bounces. Yeah. And you'd look, and it was like it was boiling. There was no sense to what the, was happening on the surface of the water. And you just have to put the oars up because you just couldn't row. It was impossible to row in. Uh, and the third factor really was hitting the wall. I became um, physically uh, exhausted. Like a, a marathon runner mm-hmm. would hit the wall with two, three miles to go. I hit the wall with two weeks to go. And the mental gymnastics I had to go through to go out and row every two hours, every hour for two hours during the day, two on two off at night, just became horrific. Um, you'd lie to yourself. You'd go, right, if I, if, I, if I don't, if I rest, I'll be much stronger. And I, but you know, you go, no, but I know I won't make that time up. I mm. can't do this. I'd sit there and count to 10. I'd go, right, I'm going to go out. I'm going to count to 10. Get the 10 and go, oh. Sometimes it'd take me half an hour mm-hmm. to get out of the cabin. 
as I say, the, the, the mental, uh, just the sheer weight of mental force needed to get out and row meant that shortly after becoming physically exhausted, I became mentally exhausted. Mm. And then I became emotionally exhausted after that, straight after that. And those last two weeks is by a long way, a country mile, the hardest, darkest, most awful, horrific thing I've ever, ever done. With, with that then, how... What were the emotions when, when you seen land? When you were like, I'm, I'm nearly there, man. Uh... Um, yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> Cut to the video of me. Yeah, I've yeah. watched it, but I wanted yeah. to hear it from you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew I was close. You see the sea changes and the waves change, and then seeing land and knowing that you're going in that night. It was, it was, it was immense, but it was still mega tricky. How, how far have you got left to go when? when... Um, when you see land then or when you saw land land the afternoon Uh, rewind back probably the last morning from getting up the last three days three days and three nights was really tricky Uh, actually we'd come too far south so now it was going to be hard coming up Mm -hmm. and in um, and again south of where I wanted to finish, there was nothing, there was no alternative. So I was getting pushed in and I was having to row as a bleak angle as I could. What he's mentioned about how dangerous it is being side mm-hmm. on the waves. Bearing that in mind, I, I had absolutely zero play for the last three days on my approach. Um, so the last three days, I virtually rowed straight through with a couple of hours mm. kip, um each day. And the last 24 hours was just rowing. I just rowed for 24 hours. So actually, I was, I was seeing land was amazing. Mm. But then that went, and I had to concentrate on keeping that line. It was so tricky. And on the knife edge. And uh, when I finished, when I crossed the line, the emotion, I had none left. I had nothing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be happy. I went, <laughs> Not emotional to a whole new yeah, level. Yeah. I'd, I'd gone beyond tiredness. Um, it, and because of that last two weeks, for months after I finished, I found it hard to think about the road in a positive way. Mm. I'm not 36 days off the able body record. So the record was 96 days. 96 days, 12 hours. 12 hours and 45 minutes. minutes. You did it. 60 days, 16 hours and 6 minutes and 40 seconds. (laughs) With five days in in Canary Islands as well. You you not only beat it, you you, you annihilated it. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Fuck, dude. Uh, Yeah. And has anyone since, do you know, tried to take that off? Someone's going to take it on. I, uh, I've got a phone call and funny it ties in with the next thing I want to do this bloke um, is massively into uh, swimming the channel he's done it about seven times so he's got something about it mm. and he rang me up 
Now I've got my number, I got an email from him uh, when we talked and uh, he's like that. And I'd like, I'm up for someone beating me and I'd like to go out there and hand them, mm. you know, watch them come into KN and can and give them the record, hand it over. That'd be awesome. Um, but yeah, he's, he's just started um, the process of getting a boat together and getting the sponsorship mm. and everything to uh, to do what I've done. And I'll, I'll help him out as yeah. much as I can. Right? Wow. And then, like you said, what's I know you've got a couple of cheeky things planned for next year. Well, everything's changing at the moment, <laughs> as, as I guess with everybody else, mm. with uh, what's happening in this crazy world at the moment. But it's probably best if I talk was what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, go for it. supposed to be part of... Um, Team Forces of Nature, 10 of us, uh, free bootnecks, um, kayaking down the Amazon. That was supposed to be now, supposed to be flying out to Peru, if not in Peru now. Uh, that's been put back to next year. Next year, I was um, the next thing I wanted to do uh, challenge-wise, and I had this idea within the first week of losing my leg, was a triathlon. I'm going to call it the triathlon, Great Britain. So like every other triathlon, clock starts when you start swimming and finishes when you finish a run. Although I can't run, mm-hmm. but bear with me. Um, so the swim, I was going to swim the channel, then get to Land's End as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and start cycling from Land's End to John O'Groves, but going via Snowden, Scarfell Pike. And then from John O'Groves, get down to Fort William as quickly as I can and do a marathon over Ben Nevis and finish at the Speenbridge Memorial. So the clock starts when you get in the water and it'll finish when I get there. I want to do it in 10 days or under. And, um, uh, well, it it encompasses the three big things in the UK, three Mm -hmm. big challenges and the three peaks, cycling hands in the John O'Groves and swimming the channel. Um, in, into one big event and it would be absolutely brilliant if I can get someone to officially recognise it as a thing mm. and say right I've set the record go and beat it um, that would be amazing if I could do that now I had put that back to 2022 mm. but I'm in the process of reassessing that and bringing it forward and I don't know if that's possible yet it's my slot for swimming the channel may have gone. Um, oh, you've got a book slots of yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I'm swimming under the Channel Swimming uh, Channel Swimming Association. Right. There's two organisations. You can't just rock up <laughs> if you've got a boat out swimming the channel. Yeah. Because the French won't let you land. Oh, okay, and, makes sense. Yeah. And you've got well, it's the busiest shipping channel in the world, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, English Channel. Uh, yeah. So, and the thing is, the pilots get booked up, and there's only like a I think there's seven with the Channel Swimming Association pilots. They get booked up years in advance. And they have so many slots. Wow, I didn't know so, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really... Um, you have to have someone from the Channel Swimming Association there mm. watching you with a clipboard. You can only wear Speedos. Uh, you've got to <laughs> wear... Yeah, you've got to wear the swimming cap. Yeah. Um, like even me and you would still yeah. need to wear a swimming cap. don't know why. Um Yes, there's all these kind of rules and regulations mm. govern governing swimming the channel. Um, so 
you swim the channel and you can only go so it would be ideal to go from France to England save a lot that of time would make, that would make sense but you can't do it the French will not allow you to swim the channel from there they'll allow you to land and then get straight back on the boat and then go the other way French being helpful as per yeah, usual yeah French being helpful yeah. as usual um, but there's lots of little things that I'm working on that might make it even more spectacular like a uh, if I can get from Lid Airport, which is quite close mm-hmm. to Folkestone, get there and like fly and do a parachute jump into so parachuting oh, into land yes. and taking off your parachute and then getting on the bike. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah, things like that. Um, abseiling down the cliffs, cliffside, doing a belay down the cliffs of Ben Nevis. Uh, so go up the tourist path mm-hmm. and come down into the glen. The, the, you know the mountain train yeah. that you're doing in the call and then uh, and finishing at Springbridge Memorial would be immense that would be awesome yeah. absolutely mega so that's that's what I've got planned for the next two years and what all the way happens is up in the air at the moment but it will happen yeah amazing bro amazing um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there because this is been by far the longest podcast and but that's by no means I just, I, Sorry I could, about that. Yeah. no mate I you know what I could chat to you for ages because I think what what you've done it, it's, it's it's fucking awesome man I'm, I'm proper in awe of you oh, uh, well as I say I've got I my leg fell off and then I've got a couple of opportunities and I just went with them and uh, yeah I've been lucky question for you before we before we wrap it up you're obviously coming to the end of your time in the core when it happened what was your what was the plan when you left the call well, the plan actually changed because I uh, I was at the HU so I, I spent the last 10 years of my career with um, the HU special duties mm-hmm. and uh, I um, I found myself in a unique position where I was one of probably a dozen or so um servicemen or women with my experience that weren't going up the management mm-hmm. uh, side of things. You know, there was people, obviously there was people in the unit who had been in the unit for like 20 years through Northern Ireland and, you know, all the troubles and that. They obviously had a lot more mm. experience in doing the job than I had. I don't mean that. I mean actual people they could call upon to go and be at the cold face. Mm-hmm. I was probably one of probably about a dozen, maybe two, two dozen. I don't know. With that sort of experience um, in in the British military, so it's kind of like a really privileged place to be. And I was due to go outside, and um, I thought about it, and these other really really interesting jobs started coming in, and I thought, you know what, I can't not leave without a try, you know, doing one of them. So I was actually going back to start training up to do a uh, very, very specialist job. That actually, when, when the accident happened, another bootneck, he took those jobs off me. And when he told me what he was getting up to when he came back, I was like, ah. Oh. Yeah, I was so close. To, mm. uh, World works in mysterious ways. Yeah, so, so I put in, although I had right next to me 22-year point, I was about, well, it was two months, almost to the day, under two months away from me, TX day, from the 22-year point, but I put in a three-year extension. Mm-hmm. And I probably would have extended a couple of more times. Mm-hmm. So I genuinely loved that job I did. 
Wow. I really, really loved it. You really felt that you were doing something that mattered. Mm -hmm. Really, really got that sense. Fucking hell. Anyway, dude, I've to call it a day. Yeah, sorry, I've Mate, don't be sorry. I've, I've absolutely <laughs> nah, man. I've, you know what? I've, I've loved, loved chatting to you. Uh, I, I can, I, yeah. To row across the Atlantic for anyone is uh, crazy, no, mate. But it's not though. Not if you're a boat mate. I'm, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've got to the point where I can look myself in the mirror and go, "You're an average boat neck. And do you know what? If you can do that, you, you've cracked it. You've cracked life. If you can say I'm an average amongst these monsters of men, then mm. you know that's everything else is. I'm happy with that. I'm happy. I'm happy being. I've achieved my life goal right back from when I was a kid. Being told by that bloke, you're not what we. You're not really that's, what we're looking for. Yeah. I got to be my childhood dream. I got to live that. That childhood dream was being an average bootneck. <laughs> Mate, that's fucking awesome. And there ain't nothing better in the whole world than being an average bootneck. I love it. I love it. Right, uh, call it a day. Massively, massively appreciate you talking to me today. That was brilliant. And uh, thank you very much. No, thanks for coming and letting me spin dicks. My kids won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair one. Uh, right. Thank you for listening and uh, catch you later.